And so before we get into Psalm 33, and you can, you can turn there, I want to ask, why do we sing songs? Why do we sing praises? It's something that we've always done, and you just do it as part of going to church, right? You, this is what you do. You come, you sit, you stand, you sit, you stand. Sometimes you sit and stand more. Um, but in between there, we're, we're singing. Why do we sing praises? And what is a hymn? Uh, like I mentioned last week, every message in the psalm so far has been a, a different type of psalm. You know, we've looked at wisdom psalms and penitent psalms and psalms of confidence. This is a hymn. This is a praise song to God. And what is praise? Well, in the, in the Hebrew culture, they were so musical. Why? Because they were told not to make graven images. So when the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Phoenicians wanted to draw attention to their God, they made big statues. They, they, they carved out images of their God. But our God, Yahweh, says, I cannot be put into an image. No image will do me justice. Do not make graven images of me. So the Hebrews became an oral people, an expressive people, a musical people. They were actually renowned for their musical talents. I mean, they would have these amazing worship services, and we're going to get a little glimpse of that here. But they sing songs of praise. Praise is taking something worthy of honor and ascribing that worth to it in words and in song. And we, we, we praise what is superior. We praise what is great. And we do this all the time and we don't even think about it. We praise restaurants. You know, if, if we love a place, we tell everyone you have to go here and you have to get this. We praise books and in movies that this book is better than this book and this movie is better than this book or you have to watch this on, on Netflix. That's what we do. We praise things without even thinking about it. We praise things that are good and one being better than the other. But how much more should we praise something that is ultimately better? That is not just a good thing, but an ultimate thing, a supreme thing. Praise is all about its object. Let me say that again. Praise is all about its object. What does that mean? That the praise is only as good as what it is referring to. If I'm praising food or if I'm praising a TV show, I'm telling you that it's worth seeing. But that object is going to fall short at some point. It's not the best meal you've ever had. It's not the best show you've ever seen. But if we give praise to God, there is no greater object. And a hymn of praise should tell us more about the object than it does ourselves. That's why when we, when we choose our songs for worship here, they point us to God. They're not lifting up ourselves. We don't come here and sing how, how great we are or only be focused on ourselves. But it points to God first. And that tells us about ourselves. Because if we are made in his image, if we are his creatures, we are a reflection of him. And so when we praise him, we learn about his character. We learn about ourselves. And so proper worship is facilitated by us back to the object. And the worship service is not self-serving. It's so easy to become consumers in our culture. We've all heard this. We've all done this. We've all come to church and said, I prefer pews, or I prefer seats. Service is too short. Service is too long. Wish I had more piano. Wish I had more guitar. I wish they'd sing this song. Wish the pastor would have said this. And 
by our natural response, we take praise and make it about us. Well, I will only come if I'm comfortable. I'll only come if it checks all of my boxes. And I'm going to keep going until you check every box for me. We all know how that, how, how that works. Because if we checked all of your boxes, we'd be missing some of yours. And if we checked all of my boxes, we'd be missing some of someone else's. And that's always a, a tension for us, is how do we find that balance? You know what we do? We make it about the Lord. We make it about lifting up his name. And someone's going to have a preference one way or another. But if we're glorifying God, that is, that is our main goal and our, our main charge as the gathering body. So it doesn't end on us. Worship doesn't stop whether we're satisfied or not. Praise doesn't stop with us. It goes through us and is directed to its object. Luke doesn't play the drums because Luke wants attention. Maybe he does, but I know he doesn't. A little bit. Luke comes here early and sets up the drums and plays because he wants to use his talents to point you to the Lord. That's why he doesn't mind being all the way in the back. If we could, we'd put him across the street. Nah, just kidding. But, you know, Justin doesn't stand up here to say, hey, look at me and my abilities. I don't come here to say, hey, look at these words that I can, I can put together. My hope is that I can get out of the way. That we can get out of the way so that our praise is taken through us to our, our Lord. And so that is the, the first thing to say because we, we tend to think, and a lot of churches do this, because we're facing you and you're facing us, that it's about a performance. That it's about what we bring to the table. We're just here to lead the people of God in worshiping his name. So yes, it's not about us. But when we glorify God, we are blessed through that. And this should be an encouragement to us. Because as we're reminded who God is, we are encouraged. We are lifted up. And that hymn, or this hymn this morning, is going to show us that. And by glorifying God, He is lifted up. And we are encouraged. And hopefully that's what this psalm will be to us this morning. So let's pray and then let's walk through our, our, our text. And... Um, Hopefully you enjoy this as much as I did uh, learning and studying it this week. Um, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the reason why we gather. You are the one we proclaim. You are the one we lift up. You are the one we exalt. You are the reason we exist. You are the reason we can even sing or speak. Let us never forget the little things like the air we breathe the food we eat, the fellowship we have, the little things that we take for granted, every good gift comes from you. Let us never forget that you are in control of all those things. Let us never act like you are far away. Let us never forget that you love us. That we would be a people who reflect you and bring glory to you. Not for our sake, but for yours. And in turn, we share in your steadfast love forever and ever. Just pray that this service and this hymn would be a blessing and that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and worthy of all honor and praise and worship forever and ever. Amen. Let's read Psalm 33 and let's walk through it. Shout for joy in the Lord. 
O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen is his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. That is a long song. So we're not going to be able to do what we normally do and walk through it in detail. So we're going to do a little more broad strokes. Um, But I want to call a couple things to your attention before we get into the text. Last week we did Psalm 32, a psalm of forgiveness. David is in anguish over his own sin, his own trespasses. He comes before the Lord and confesses. And his burden is lifted. And then he can receive the counsel of the Lord and he can sing praises. Verse 11 of Psalm 32 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all the upright in heart. So Psalm 32 ends where Psalm 33 begins. It begins with this response, this command to worship. Shout for joy. It's a command. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks, another command. Make melody, another command. Sing to him, another command. Play skillfully, another command. There's a list of commands. And so this is how Psalm 33 starts. And this is actually, uh, in its overall structure, a picture of Hebrew worship. So what did a Hebrew worship service look like? It begins with songs of praise. It begins with hymns. It begins with shouts. It's a big party in honor of our God. And then we recount who God is. We talk about his actions and his attributes. So the, verse, the first three verses are the beginning of the worship service. And then verses 4 through uh, 19 are talking about the actions and the attributes of God. How he acts among the nations and how he acts among his people. So they are retelling the things of God. Why are we to be a people who tell? Yes, that can be about sharing the gospel, but it is about retelling the acts of God to one another. 
We sing of his, uh, of his might. We retell of his acts. This is what the Hebrews did. They started with worship. Then they went into retelling. We, we see this all throughout the scriptures. Tell your children. Don't let them forget, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who saved you from Pharaoh. Don't forget, I am your redeemer. I am your refuge. I am your salvation. Don't forget these things. And then like every good worship service should, it closes in 20 through 22 with this response, this corporate prayer of patience, humility, and trust in the Lord. So we're going to walk through that a little bit, but I want you to get the overall structure of what's happening here. We're, we're, we're getting a small piece of what it was like to worship with the Israelites. So I'm going to point out a few observations as we kind of walk through the text, but again, we're not going to get into great detail. So, verses 1 through 3 start with these commands, this command to praise, this command to worship. Because as worshipers, if we're not worshiping God, we will worship something. Like we talked about earlier, if we're not praising God, we will spend all our time praising things. Watch this. Look at this. Guess what I found? Those are all praises. Those are not bad in and of themselves. That's all our attention is drawn to the things of this earth. We're missing the creator himself. So there's a couple things that's really interesting here. Verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Who are the righteous? It's are God's people. These are the people called by his name and redeemed. Who is the upright? It is God himself. So a worship service It's about the people of God praising God. It's not a gathering just for ourselves. It's not to appeal to the world around us. It is the righteous lifting up the upright. That is what worship is. That is what the service is about. Verse 2, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. A lyre is kind of like a, like a handheld harp, another string instrument, maybe the archaic guitar or something along those, those lines, uh, but both stringed instruments. doesn't mean that these are the only instruments for worship. It's basically saying anything that will make noise, anything that will make a melody, use it for the Lord. Because you can't invent enough instruments to give him the praise he deserves. Make melody to him. Sing to him a new song. Does it mean we only have to have new songs? Of course not. But as we go through life, we are reminded of, of, of new things, that we can always sing about new things. His mercies are new every morning. There's always something new we can praise him for. But they never contradict with, with Scripture. And these great hymns and songs that we sing from the history of, of the church were new at some point. And so we continue to include the Psalms, we include hymns, and we include contemporary songs. Um, and that balance is never going to be perfect to everyone, but, but we do the best we can. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings. God is a God of order. We don't get up here and just scream or clash cymbals without melody. It's the reason why we have musicians to be skillful. We want to offer our, our best. We don't just throw together our worship service. We don't just scamper up here. We want to offer the best that, that we have. We want to play skillfully. Not because it brings us attention, 
but because we want to glorify God to the best of our ability with everything that we have. Please skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. I don't know about you, but I never really put together the harp in loud shouts. It didn't really gel, but I guess the Hebrews really got down with the, you know, with, with, with that. And, and so that brings up something else. I mean, this is something that is embedded in our culture. Because on, on, on one side, you either have this, this Victorian idea of being in church and standing up straight and never raising your, your, your voice. David got indignant in worship. Worship is to lift up the name of the Lord. Play skillfully with loud shouts. And we also don't want to be chaotic because God is a God of order. We're not all running around screaming, but we are shouting because we can't hold it inside. Amen. We can shout in, in, in church because most of us as Americans, we, we're still in church. But it's, it's two minutes left in the fourth quarter. We're, we're on our feet shouting, right? We can shout the name of the Lord because he is worthy of our praise. Verse four, for the word of the Lord is upright. Why do we shout? Why do we praise? Well, now we see the character of God after this command to worship. What is his character? The word of the Lord is upright and his works are done in faithfulness. We praise the Lord for his word and his works. They're upright. Remember, it is praise from the righteous to the upright. His very words are a reflection of him. He is upright, so his words are upright. So we use scripture as our measure for everything. His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love of the Lord. What do we see about God in just two verses? Upright, faithful, righteous, just, steadfast love. These are all things that we ascribe to God. This is why he is worthy of praise. This word steadfast love, um, I, I can't fully explain it, but this is something that's used very often throughout the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word, hased. It basically means loving kindness or steadfast love. Or if you were to string together 15 different words that mean unchanging, good, all righteous, all loving, that would be hesed. And we don't have that in English. So whenever you see the steadfast love of the Lord, or some translations will say loving kindness, it is this unshakable, faithful quality that only God possesses and that only his people can be a reflection of. So this is a powerful term. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is going to be a theme throughout this psalm. We'll see it in verse 18 and we'll see it in verse 22 as well. But let's move on. Okay, so now we see we, that we begin with praise. We talk about the character of the Lord. And now we talk about his, his attributes, his, his word manifesting itself as his works. So we see creation in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He continues in verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. And he puts the depths into storehouses. So we see two pictures here. That God creates and he controls. 
He doesn't just create it and leave it there. The waters are still under his, his, his control. This word for uh, he gathers the waters of the sea as a, a heap. It can also mean it, he, it, they're able to be bottled up. So in verse 6, we see this picture of creation. His word brought things to be. And his word still controls them. So this is a reminder to the Israelites that when you walked across the Red Sea, he bottled up the waters. He put them in storehouses. Made me think of Fantasia. Remember Fantasia? That like great scene at the end where, where Mickey's conducting the waves and the waves are crashing all around. He's telling where to move. That's a very, very small picture of our God just effortlessly, effortlessly parting the waters so that his people could walk across on dry ground. We haven't even seen the bottom of the ocean, and God could bottle it up in a second. He created, and he is still in control of creation. And this is to be a reminder to his people of his power. It's the same God. The same God who created the earth saves his people. He can save them because he created them. He can save the earth because he created it. Nothing is outside of his control. And he has never not been in control of his creation. Yes, the double negative was necessary. He is never not in control of his creation. You know, just side note, um, in English, we we have these kind of snobby rules that you never use double, double negatives. In the Hebrew and the Greek, they use double negatives all the time because they want you to know he is never not in control. I want you to see... These words that should not normally go together, we put them together so you know he is never not in control. So sometimes we can throw out English grammar, thank the Lord. My mom was an English teacher, does not want to hear that, but we can. So we talk about his creation in verse 6 and 7. People, in verse 8, are also part of the creation. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke. It came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We see the, the words and the works come together again. He spoke and it was. He commanded and it stood firm. God's words are never separated from his works. Let all of the earth fear the Lord. All of the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Just like the heavens and the waters he created mankind. He created them. We are to stand in awe of him. He is Awesome. God is awesome. We to praise Him because of His Word and His works. Can I just get on a soapbox for a minute about this word awesome? This word has lost its meaning in our culture. I thought it was dead, and then the Lego movie can just completely killed it. Everything is not awesome. God is awesome. We've taken this word that was only attributed to God and made it about everything else. Because we can just as soon say in some surfer voice, like, dude, that was awesome. This service was awesome. And many Christians I hear, oh, that was awesome. You're awesome. Maybe it's just me, but when I visit churches and they say awesome 15 times in the announcements, I want to just jump out of my skin. Your God is not big enough. Your God is not great enough. If everything is awesome, 
The word awesome means awe-inspiring. It is worthy of awe, trembling, fear, just blowing your, your, your mind. It's not a 30-second YouTube clip. God is awesome. My cousin, um, who's, I think, Shri and I is probably model for, for, for parenting. She's got four little kids who are amazing. These, these kids are brilliant. Awesome. They're, they're, <laughs> you, you sound amazing. I did. They are amazing. They're not awesome. And, and listen, they will, they, they will tell you that. She has four little biblical scholars who, who, who she, she homeschools. And these kids are so sweet, so kind, and so brilliant. But if you say awesome around there, they say no. God is awesome. How do you argue with an eight-year-old who says, no, God is awesome. Don't say that about this pizza or, or, or whatever. I love those kids. And they challenge me because I realize I, I tend to just throw that, that word around. The, the psalmist is saying here, all the earth should fear the Lord. It is synonymous with standing in awe of him. He's worthy of our praise. He is awesome. I think there's a fundamental issue underneath that. The real problem in our church today is that God is not awesome. God is not big enough. It's all about us. It's do I feel good in in the moment? God's okay, but he's waiting for me to make the right decision. The God that is taught in many churches, in many popular ministries, is not awe-inspired. He's not big enough. He's not great enough. He's not powerful enough. He's not to be feared. Too many preachers and Christians want attention for themselves and not the glory of God. The Hebrews, as we walk through this, the praise is directed at God. The accolades are directed at God. The awe-inspiring language is directed at God. They don't get to themselves until the end. But our culture is consumeristic. It is individualistic. It is self-focused. Many churches have become that, trying to appeal to the world around them They say what the world wants to hear. And we're not going to talk about the uncomfortable parts of God. It's going to tell you all the things that you want to hear. Tickling of ears. But our God is great. Our God is awesome. As long as I have breath, I will never stop to declare that. And I hope we won't either as a body, as a people, to lift him up. Because God doesn't need him, us, to make him nice and pretty. We're just here to declare. We're just the messenger. We're not the object. We're just the middleman. We declare what our Lord has done and we get out of the way. It's simple, but it's very difficult. The psalmist doesn't stop here. Obviously, it continues. And let's see, is the God who we think of too small? Or do we stand with the Hebrews and lift up the greatness of God? Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Let's look at that first. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. This is where God's power and his knowledge meet. This is what sovereignty looks like. All-knowing. And all powerful come together. And he frustrates the plans of the nations. 
God doesn't get frustrated. He frustrates. I love that picture. Because how many of us, when we get frustrated at people, we assume God is as frustrated as we are? I mean, we can be honest with that. We think that God should be as angry as I am right now. That God should not allow this to go on because I'm frustrated, because I'm hurt. As if God needs to respond to the wicked things that people do to us or that happen in our lives the way we do. To get frustrated, to get short-tempered. God does not get frustrated, he frustrates. It's what a sovereign God does apart from his creation. It doesn't respond the way we do. I love what it says here in verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Nothing. Not little. Not something. The counsel of the nations to nothing. Love what Proverbs 19.21 says. Proverbs 19.21 just sums this up beautifully. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. When you get frustrated at what happens, what other people do, remind yourself of this verse. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We can make all the plans we want, and we'll see in a moment the nations can do all that they want, but it is the purpose of the Lord that stands. He is sovereign and he reigns. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing, and they come together. So he continues, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his his heritage. We won't spend too much time here, but I just want to say this briefly. In, In verse 12, this is about Israel. This is about a theocratic nation whose law of the land is the law of God. So this is specifically about Israel. Now, there are implications for us. As his people, we become spiritual Israel. So as his chosen people, we are part of, of his heritage. Uh, but many times this, this is tried, people try to apply this to modern nations. We do not have any modern theocracies, definitely not devoted to the one true God. And so that should be mentioned before we move on. Unless the law of the land is the law of God, unless God's people are ruling and pointing people to him, you do not have a theocracy. Theocracy, it's, it's God's rule. Democracy, people rule. Aristocracy is the rule of the elite. So we have a combination of democracy or aristocracy. Um, definitely not theocracy. Fair enough? Good. All right. Just wanted to get that out there because I've heard that verse used that, that way. All right, verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. For where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them observes all their deeds. There are three synonyms here. The Lord looks down. He looks out. And he observes. So this is a God who sees. Nothing comes outside of his vision. This is an all-seeing, all-knowing God. So it takes it a little further. It's not just that God's plans rule over the earth, but he knows what you're thinking. Why? Because he fashioned the hearts of them all. God created each one of us, created everyone who ever lived. And if your God is not big enough to know the hearts and mind of every person who ever lived and not break a sweat, he's not big enough. Our God looks down, looks out, and sees all the actions of men. 
This is sovereignty. This is absolute power and absolute knowledge coming together. It's not a small thing. This is why we're still praising God here. Because he's this big, he's this great, this powerful, this knowledgeable. Verse 16 and verse 17, I want to spend a little time here. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. All right, what does this mean for us? You think we're the first ones to trust in our, in our nation more than God? You think we're the first one to put our trust in tanks, in armies? They're putting their trust in, in war horses, in rulers. Salvation does not come from man. does not come from the powers of nations. There is a theme throughout all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. The prophets would tell Israel, don't put trust in the nations. Don't put trust in the, in the rulers. Turn to me. Trust in the Lord. Because they're going to disappoint you. And they did. The might of nations is a false hope for salvation. So I want to spend just a moment here. Because we, find, we all have found ourselves here at one point or another. And if you ever get overly hopeful or overly worried about what this country or any country does, you're losing sight of how great God is. I'm not going to get into specifics, but let's talk about the last election cycle, right? When I read this passage, I think about this. I think about how many people, let's just talk about Christians who said the world is going to be over if this person gets elected. What's going to happen if this person gets elected? What are we going to do? Our nation is done. How many people, Christians, were praising the gospel of their candidate more than the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many Christians lost sleep over whether their their candidate was going to make it or not? They didn't lose sleep for someone who was far from Christ. How many Christians celebrate their candidate more than celebrating the steadfast love of the Lord in the deeds of our God? This just broke my heart over this last election cycle. Just thinking through how much stock we put in men. If you see yourself watching the news and getting overly excited or overly depressed because of what happens in the nations, stop it. Our God is in control. The God who created the waters in the heavens can bottle them up in a second. What is an army? What is a nuclear bomb? What is a legislation? There is nothing outside of his control. We need to stop acting like our lives rise and fall on our political climate, on our economic climate, on our social climate. Has God ever stepped down from his throne? And yes, getting upset about this because I was there. There was a season in my life when I woke up and went to sleep on everything that was happening in the news cycle and it made me miserable. I was critical. It was negative. And I was far from the Lord at that time. And I had to be convicted of it. And, I was con- and someone brought it to my attention and I was convicted to take 
a week fast from the news. Took a week fast from the news and sports. Guys, that's tough. But I did it, and it was so helpful. I've never gone back, and I realized in that week how dependent I was on the next news feed, the next cycle, the next story. Don't be those people. Be rooted in things that are unchanging. The steadfast love of the Lord is unchanging. No matter what happens in the news, no matter what everyone's getting worked up about right now, the war horses can't save. The armies can't save. Our God saves. I love this. There's a, there's a quote by George Whitfield, um, great revivalist preacher. And he says something along the lines of, you are invincible until God is finished with you. Think about that. That there is nothing on earth that can change God's plan for your life. You've got one of those little Mario stars where nothing can touch you until God is finished with you. I love that picture. Do to me what you must. And this is a man who came preaching the gospel and they threw fruit at him. They threw bottles at him. I am invincible until God is finished with me. There is nothing that man can do to change his call on my life. I love that. Look at Isaiah 2.22. It'll be up on the screen. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Wow. I like what Vody Bakum says. If you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> this is how Isaiah is beginning his, his letter to the Israelites. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Think about this. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Where do they get the breath from? Who created air? God created air. God put breath in their nostrils. Why are you regarding them? Look to the creator, not the creation. Remember, God brings the counsel of man to nothing. I put air in your lungs. I can take it away in a moment. Don't worry about them. Trust in me. Verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Now it changes. So God acts in general. This is all the foundation. Don't forget, this is the God of creation, the God of control, the God who is over all things. It's still intimate enough to say the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Here's this, this term again. The reason we can hope in this steadfast love is it's, create, it's rooted in the God who holds creation together. The God who frustrates the plans of the wicked, who brings them to nothing. Our hope is in him. If we reminded ourselves of all the things the Israelites reminded themselves of over and over and over again, we'd probably still mess up the way they did. But we should remind ourselves of these things over and over and over again because... If all those are true, he created all things and knows all things and holds all people, then when he says he loves us, it means something. And he loves us in a unique way. Salvation is from the, from the Lord. The eye of the Lord is a good thing. It's basically saying, I'm keeping my eye on you. I have a particular glance in your direction. Not like all the other nations who trust in, in their, their power. God's people trust in him. Because he loves them. 
Because his love is steadfast, unchanging, unshifting. Same God who made the heavens and the earth. And keep saying this over and over and over again, remains in control. He listens to his people and he loves them. This is our hope. Because the same God who creates, redeems, and holds. In the midst of our sin, unable to help ourselves, dead, he chose us in Christ. He sent his son who shed his blood for our sins. The God who created all things cared enough about me, a self-centered screw-up. Sent his son to shed his blood so we could be saved by his grace. Because he is loving and kind. And he will preserve us to the end. Because he loves us. This is what our hope is in. Because if our hope is in this God, who saves, preserves, and nothing is outside of his counsel, that is a real hope. That is a real encouragement. Let's talk about that word hope for a minute. It's kind of like awesome. It's kind of just lost all of its meaning in our culture. We throw around hopes and dreams like I hope this, I hope that. Hope is just like praise. It's only as valuable as its object. If you are hoping that your boss will recognize you to feel good about yourself, if you are hoping that something next week turns out the way you want it to, your hope is about as solid as what you're placing it on. What is our hope dependent on? What do we hope in? What greater object can we place our hope in than the sovereign creator Lord and his steadfast, unchanging, unfailing love? And now that's why this prayer in response in verse 20 to 22 is so perfect. Such a great response. After we see all this, after we remind ourselves all the things that the Lord does, look at verse 20 to 22. How beautiful this is. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Not the shields of armies, but the Lord. For our heart is glad in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is our corporate response. We praise Him. We we retell of all of His works. And we have nothing left to do but say, You're great. I can wait in you. I can hope in you. I can rest in you. And there is no rest elsewhere. We can rest because our God is in control. The God who creates controls. He also saves our help, our shield. Our Father always provides. And if you're a little child and your father comes home from work every day at the same time because your father is faithful and you can trust in him, you have no problem waiting because you know he will come. Our Father is faithful day after day. And we should have the same confidence to wait on Him and His timing. He has promised good things for us. We can look to His joys every day because He's faithful every day. We can look for His deliverance because He has promised it. The people of Israel are so in awe that they only get around themselves, around to talking about themselves at the end. Just saying, Lord, help us to rest in your love. We want to wait and trust in you. We remind ourselves of God's goodness. We remind ourselves of his words and his works. 
so that we can have this confidence, so that we can rest in him, so that our hope is surely rested in him. So as we conclude this morning, why do we praise? Because our God is worthy of praise. And in 22 verses, there's a few reasons. There are so many more because all the sermons in all the world couldn't dive the depths of why he is worthy of praise. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things, yet he cares enough to place his love on his people. His people praise him because we're reminded of his love everywhere. His steadfast love is a witness to him across the earth. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Simple bumper sticker verse means so much more when you think about this God. The God of creation who knows all things loved us so much to send his son. And if he loved us enough to send his son that he would die for our sin, how can we not trust him to be faithful today and tomorrow and for forever? How can we not wait in him? Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't stay on his throne, came to walk here to get dust in between his toes because he loved us. And there was nothing that the Jews or Pilate, or the Romans could do to stop. Yes, he died, and it seemed like the weeping comes for a time when he's on the cross. But in a few weeks, we will celebrate the joy in the morning of him rising, and it is finished in him. So just as a close here, I want to give you guys a homework assignment. Very simple one. Read this psalm this week, but... Read it as a prayer. Address every line to the Lord in the second person. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 4. For your word, O Lord, is upright. All of your work is done in faithfulness. You love righteousness and justice. The earth is full of your steadfast love. By your word, O Lord, the heavens were made. And by your breath, from your mouth, all their hopes. You gather the waters of the sea as a heap. You put the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear you, Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of you. For you spoke, and it came to be. You commanded, and it stood firm. You bring the counsel of the nations to nothing. You frustrate the plans of the peoples. Your counsel stands forever. The plans of your heart to all generations. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. You just lift up your name. There is no other name that is worthy of praise. Forgive us when we praise other things. Forgive us when we put ourselves and our desires on a throne that is only meant for you. Help us to encourage and remind one another how great you are. That our hope and our confidence would be in your steadfast love. That we are unshaken in you. As the world crumbles down around us, we are founded on you because you love us. We are invincible until you are finished with us. You are not finished with us and you are not finished with this world. You are still calling people to yourself because you are faithful. Let us be your heralds. 
Let us proclaim your goodness, your mercy, your grace, and your gospel from now until you come again. In the mighty name of Jesus, the only name under heaven which man can be saved, we lift up our service in this time to you. Amen.